Friends, over the last couple months uh, this fall, we've been asking some uh, deep, significant spiritual questions. Um, Many of them don't have uh, black and white answers. And of all the questions we're asking last week, uh, when Rev addressed the question, why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in the world? And this week, addressing the question, why is there suffering? And why especially do innocent and young people and kids suffer? Uh, this is about as, as visceral and real as it gets. But by God's grace and with the light of the word of God, even though we may not come to black and white or any kind of easy answers, um, God's light will shine nonetheless. So in this pursuit of asking questions, uh, it's a great and God-given thing to do, to ask questions. The best question askers I've ever met are little kids, right? Little kids, they... When am I going to have another sister, a little sister? Why, Mommy, are the leaves changing colors? Why doesn't Grandpa have any hair? They just ask about everything. Like, it's deep in human nature to question, right? Our Western civilization is built on the scientific method, asking why about everything, right? Why do planets have elliptical orbits? Why is the boiling point of water 212 degrees Fahrenheit? Why, why, why? Answers. We crave these answers. I think, however, when it comes to the why questions about human nature, as we grow older, we find very clever ways to distract ourselves from dwelling on these why questions. Right? We know a little more about the le- why the leaves change color. We don't know why Grandpa's hair falls out. It just does. But questions... Questions that occasionally kids can disarm us with. So 15 years ago, had a little four-year-old at our house. And all of a sudden one day, she's asking the question, why are the two towers on fire? And what do you say as a parent? Like, how how can you explain that to a four-year-old? Why do these bad people want to hurt us? When we let our defenses down as grown-ups, these why questions can get brutal, right? Why Hurricane Matthew? Why does Haiti get whacked again? Why is there always war in the Middle East? Do you remember this picture that surfaced last summer of this little three-year-old Syrian boy. I couldn't bear to put it on a screen. I looked at this thing this week. This boy's name was Aylan Kurdi. He washed up on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, this perfect, beautiful boy. Because of war in the human race, because 20% of a country is fleeing its own borders. And he's just one. We look around this world, and why do we live in a world that is just plagued by suffering. And we wonder about our own little lives. Why did my parents have to split when I was a kid? Why was I physically abused? 
Why is my spouse sick with cancer? Why did my mom die so young? These questions at their deepest all boil down to this why. Why suffering? Why do we live in a universe like this? On a couple of occasions, Jesus of Nazareth brought his disciples just straight into this question. In Luke chapter 13, uh, Jesus pretty much asked the question point blank. I'm assuming there, um, Jesus and his disciples, on the western side of Jerusalem, there was this thing called the Tower of Siloam, where the water source kind of flowed into Jerusalem. And as they're standing there, Jesus asks this. What about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the other people living in Jerusalem? So Jesus is putting you know, his finger on this question, why is suffering hap- happening? I mean, why did this tower randomly collapse and kill these people? And he's also putting his finger on this other thing that is deep in human nature, which is in seeking an answer, we really, really, really want to find someone or something to blame. Because the instinctive answer is, uh, so-and-so has cancer. Why do they have cancer? Well, they didn't take very good care of themselves. I mean, did you see what, you know, their, their diet over the last 40 years? Unbelievable. So-and-so, their marriage broke up. Did you ever see the way he talked to her? Like, we, we just do this instinctively. When there's trouble, we want to be able to find something quick and easy to blame. And Jesus is saying, this tower that fell on these 18 people, do you think it was that, you know, one of them was cheating on their spouse, so God took care of them, and one of them was swindling from his boss, so God took care of them, and one of them was playing fast and loose with the synagogue rules? So, like, in one fell swoop, God just... Wiped 18 people out. And Jesus says, I tell you, no. That's not how it works in the world. I wish, I so wish, friends, that at this point Jesus paused and offered some kind of explanation, but he does not. He instead offers a response. And this is the only way, based on Scripture, I know how to say even anything beyond a stammer or a whispered tear about why there is so much suffering in the world. There is not an answer, but there are responses. Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. But unless you repent, you're all going to perish. Like, unless we turn around toward God again, unless we change our ways and orient ourselves toward God, like, we're all in the same boat. Everybody is equally worthy of blame. If you want to find somebody to blame for something, I mean, it's really this easy. You just close your eyes, scramble around, point. Sorry, Clark, it's your fault. You're to blame. Same exercise. Ashton, I really like you, man, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, we are all in the blame boat, There's a doctrine that we subscribe to based on scripture called total depravity. 
Doesn't that sound like an inviting phrase? Total depravity. This does not mean that everybody is as wicked and evil as they can be every minute of the day. That is not true, clearly. It means that every corner of our lives is tainted and colored and twisted just a little bit by the sin that infects everything. And God is not to blame for this, though he created everything. It's us. It's the human race. It's our original parents in whom we also live that brought this world of sin and sickness and suffering and evil. We are all to blame. And Jesus says, why suffering? Turn around and face God. That horrible thing that happened to you when you were a kid? Turn around and face God. You just lost your job. Turn around and face God. You don't know how to vote in the presidential election? Turn around and face God. Now, if I looked to you, if I could look all of you deeply in the eyes and say to you right in this moment, what part of your life do you really need to turn and face God in? I think there's two responses. Like one is hopefully you would have a have a, a positive response of like, yes, in this part of my life I'm totally like I'm ignoring God, I'm keeping him at a distance. Turn around and face God. I mean if you know what that is, like write it on the back of your hand or write it on your worship folder right now and like pray and face God. The other possible response is, you know, me and God are pretty good. I think I'm facing God. In which case you're so proud that you need to turn around and face God. There's another moment where Jesus is walking with his disciples. This is in John chapter 9. And the gospels say this. As Jesus went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, do you hear the blame, the blame game that is going on in this question? Like, here's a blind man, so clearly, either he or his parents or his great-grandparents, like, clearly God is punishing them through this disease. Right? That is what they're implying. Why did New Orleans get struck by Hurricane Katrina? Obviously, it's a horrible, immoral city that, you know, merited divine punishment. And Jesus says, not so much. Thank you very much. Not so much. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened. His blindness, his suffering, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world, says Jesus. Why suffering? And Jesus says, as long as I'm in the picture, suffering is an opportunity to do something good. Where there's suffering, you can respond with light and goodness. As I said before, we have this deep, deep instinct to blame. You can also see it in the religions of the world. Every religion has some kind of idea of sacrifice where the innocent can take the blame or suffer 
for the guilty, right? Sometimes we think this is primitive spirituality, right? Like, I mean, horrible things like sacrificing innocent children or a virgin or an animal. Like, that strikes us as horrible and awful, but this is a a deep part of the truth of the universe that in order to cover the blame of the guilty, somebody needs to suffer. And if you can't cover it yourself because you're guilty and blameworthy, then someone innocent suffers in the place of the guilty. I mean, in the pages of the Old Testament, the night of the Passover, spotless one-year-old lambs are sacrificed and their blood is painted over the doors so that the angel of death passes over and the people are to be set free. It's an innocent lamb. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, there's this thing called the scapegoat, a young, unblemished goat, and the sins of the people are heaped on this goat and the goat is kicked out into the wilderness. But none of these things actually work. They're symbolically significant, but they don't actually free people like me and you from our blame. Until. Until the one perfectly innocent creature that has ever lived came to earth and sacrificed his perfect, sinless Life for you and for me. God looked at the mess of the cosmos. God looked at the mess that my life is. And he did not turn away. I mean, if I was working on a project that was as big of a mess as, like, my life, like, it'd go in the recycling, right? Actually, it'd go in the garbage. (laughs) God did not do that. Out of love, he sent himself. He sent his son, the only truly innocent person who has ever walked or lived or breathed, suffered selflessly and sacrificially for the rest of us. Jesus' suffering accomplished the greatest good of all. He did something. He is doing something. We see glimpses of this. Uh, in the best of humanity, right? We heard from Gita today. She's in New Delhi in India. I mean, I was there a year ago. It, my mind could not comprehend. 1.3 billion people, most of them living in a way that we do not understand. And she is reaching out to the autistic in the midst of the community. She is doing good in Jesus' name. Why suffering? So that the body of Christ, so that the spirit of God, so that Jesus himself can do good in the world in response. A week and a half ago in uh, Time Magazine, the cover story was about a group called the White Hats, White Helmets in Syria. I mean, these people are choosing to stay, to go into the most conflict-ridden battle zones and rescue others wearing only white helmets to signify themselves. They have disavowed guns, arms, grenades, none of that, just a white helmet and a desire to help their fellow human beings. Like, that is more eternally powerful 
than Bashar would ever be. That is more eternally powerful than any politic or any amount of cash. Like, doing good is what will remain. So suffering, it can help us respond and repent. It can help us uh, find the empowerment to do something good if we just look around. And finally, why suffering? The scripture says that our suffering offers us an invitation and an opportunity to grow up, spiritually speaking. Um, Now, I am so lazy, and I believe you are so lazy, that unless we suffered, we would not seek God with the kind of urgency or devotion that he deserves. I wish for me that gratitude was enough. And it should be, right? God has done everything. He's given everything. It should be enough that just my life is thank you, thank you, thank you. But when things are going awesome for me and the sailing is smooth, I get so lazy. And it's not that, you know, God intervenes and says, okay, you're so lazy, Greg. Now's like time for some sickness to come. Now's time. Like God doesn't work that way. But inevitably, because I'm so lazy, it's the difficulty and pain in life that drive me to my knees and make me seek God just out of desperation. As long as the world is sinful and the color of sin is on our nature, we need suffering to keep our feet on Jesus' path. Probably just a little suffering would be enough. For some of us, it's a lot of suffering. I have no explanation and nothing to say about that. Jesus did not say anything about that. Why some of us get a teaspoon and some of us get two liters. But in a sin-ridden world, suffering can help us grow up. Even our own sin and bad decisions, if we will allow it by God's grace, becomes the very stuff which transforms us into new creations. Makes us look a little more like what we're going to look like on the other side. I'm going to simply read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, because the word of God in this chapter is so direct and clear. It's not easy, but it's super direct on this topic. I'm reading from the message translation. Hebrews 12. In our all-out match against sin, others have suffered far more than we are currently suffering. And that's not even to say anything about what Jesus himself went through. All that bloodshed. We could feel sorry for ourselves, but let's not. Quick aside, this isn't to say you shouldn't grieve, you shouldn't mourn, that pain is bad. No, of course not. But let's not wallow in self-pity. Let's not forget how good parents treat their children and how God regards you, even you, as his precious child. The scriptures say this in the Old Testament. My dear child, do not shrug off God's discipline. Don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces, he also corrects. Through our suffering, God is educating us. 
That is why we must never, ever drop out of the race of faith. God is treating us as dear children. The trouble that you're experiencing, it is not punishment. It's training. It's the normal experience that every child has. Only an irresponsible parent would leave a child to fend for themselves. Would you prefer to have an irresponsible God? We respect our human parents for training us and not spoiling us. Yeah, once we get a little older. So why not embrace God's training so that we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. But God is indeed doing what is best for his family, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. It hurts. But later on, however, this discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are truly trained by it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not remove suffering. He has not removed it in the last 2,000 years from the world. But he redeems it. God the Father has not yet eliminated sickness and pain and disease from the face of the earth. But he is working to renew it before he removes it. The Holy Spirit des desires to recycle, to redeem, to renew. This is our Christian hope. If it is only suffering and then death with a whisper and a moan, why should we even bother? But our faith says that Jesus has taken all the blame. He has exchanged a perfect life and the whole heap of eternal suffering on the cross so that we might have the opening to receive the gift of eternal life. Like, that's how it works. That's what all the sacrifices are about. That's what our deep instinct about blame is all about. It's answered, it's responded to in the perfect life of Jesus Uh, in the very, I can't explain to you exactly how this works, right? It's a spiritual, <laughs> eternal mystery, but it works. Uh, so I mentioned a year ago, my family was in India. Uh, at one point, we were in a rug factory. Um, have you ever seen a cashmere rug? These are very hard to get your hands on because there's horrible war in Kashmir and nothing gets exported these days. I mean, like the finest rugs in the world from silks and wools and generation after generation of weavers who pass down patterns and designs to one another. If you see one of these rugs being made, I mean, it's, it's just mind-boggling. If you flip one over, there's just thousands of knots. I mean, in the size of the palm of my hand, thousands of knots. And someone is hand-tying each one. And I mean, there's carpets bigger than the ones that are up here on stage. I mean, imagine like a 20 by 20 carpet and in the size of your palm is 10,000 knots. When you see the underside of that carpet, it looks like a mess. It's just 
strings. It's not the dyed part of the silk. It's not the dyed part of the wool. It's just strings. But when you flip that carpet over and then see how every knot has its place and the top side is the dyed wool, the dyed silk, and it's this amazing, intricate, beautiful, beautiful design. That is what the universe is like. Like, my little life is just a handful of knots on the underside. It's not much to look at. It looks like a total mess, right? But by God's grace, every single one of our lives, every planet in the cosmos, every animal, every kid, like, we are all getting woven together into something that we cannot currently see. But on the other side, when God opens our eyes, when God opens our imaginations, we will stand back and not just behold the little part that could fit in the palm of your hand. We will see something that covers the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be so awesome and beautiful that we will have nothing left to do but to say, once I was blind, but now I can see and worship God for the awesome creator and weaver and redeemer that he is. Can you, by faith, believe in the picture that I just painted for you? That even though it just looks like a bunch of knots right now, that even though your pain, your personal suffering, may be such a big cup that you don't know how you're going to drink it, that someday, by God's grace, it will be woven into something eternally beautiful. By faith, I believe that folks who have a bigger cup in this life, my niece who was born with Down syndrome, her strand of carpet is going to be especially beautiful and colorful. If this is true, if what I'm saying is true, then not even the worst of humanity, the worst of our pain, the worst hurricane, the senseless death of that beautiful three-year-old boy, none of it is sturdy enough to separate us from the love of God. The love of God is stronger deeper, wider, more transcendent, more imaginative than trouble. Romans 8 says this. If God is for us, who, what could be against us? God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, the innocent for the guilty. How will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? The whole carpet. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or cancer or unemployment or civil war? Self-inflicted bodily harm? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present 
nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in the all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? amen. What? Amen. amen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are grateful for the curiosity that you have put inside of us. Thank you that you give us the freedom to kick the tires of faith and to ask why, 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 why. And thank you that even though our limited minds and vision cannot comprehend the enormity of the answer, that you do provide us with a way to respond. God, Give us the courage, give us the wisdom to repent. Give us the courage to be able to respond with something good, to shine a little light in the midst of this dark world. And God, give us the courage to desire to want to grow up in you, to embrace the life you've given us, even the ridiculously hard parts, God and to live it in your name and pursuing you. God, into your hands we commend our spirits. Keep our feet on the narrow path of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. At this point in our service, uh, as a way of saying thank you to God, and as a way of saying, God, everything I have is really yours, uh, we receive tithes and offerings. So I invite the deacons forward uh, as they... Uh, make their way around the worship center. The band's going to play a great song about uh, being God's hands in this world. <laughs>